This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Jillian, can you share some background to your role and responsibilities at Airbnb? Sure, yeah. So I was uh, I joined Airbnb in 2015. I was there for almost five years. The first role I had was uh, managing the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, I did that for a couple of years. And then I migrated on to work on the new business, which was the experiences business. So from 2000, beginning of 2017 until I left the company, I was working as the uh, global head of operations for experiences, which is the, as I said, the best way I can describe that as Airbnb's second album. The first album being a very successful homes business and then the launch into experiences. Can you just give an example then of a, a typical experience? Oh, I, I went on so many. It's one of the glories of that job is you get to go on so many experiences to test them, right? So I did a fair amount of food tours. So um, I did a, a giving a great example uh, in Barcelona. I did a secret paella, secret garden paella experience where a local uh, a local uh, person from Barcelona taught everyone how to cook paella. So a group of about 12, 14 people. And then we all sat down to eat together. Another example is uh, I did a sunset cycling tour around Tokyo. So led by somebody who knows the region, all through the back streets of Tokyo. So you'd never imagine cycling through Tokyo, right? But we were doing that in the sunset and get to see parts of Tokyo you just never would normally see. Another example is in London, I did a wheelchair tennis lesson with a group of people. So this was somebody who's done semi-professionally playing wheelchair tennis. So we learned not only how to navigate and understand what it's like, how difficult it is to, to move a wheelchair, but also play tennis. Tremendous fun, but also gave you a lot of empathy for people with disabilities. So huge range of different types of experiences. Right. So what was the original idea from management about why this would be a good allocation of capital? Well, if you think about uh, the experience, Airbnb was born out of... Um, it was born, I guess, 2008 when the company started in, during the recession. And it was about the experience of being hotels not being a fantastic experience, right? So by opening up people's homes, you, you, you completely transform people's idea of a, an experience for uh, staying in a home. And, and so the business, obviously, the rest is history, I guess, grew, grew very quickly and became a huge platform for people up there in their homes. So you can go and stay in a, a single room and in a city or you, or, or you can go and do a holiday home or whatever. But one thing that quickly realized, actually, is that you don't really go and travel to stay in a home. Right? You're going to travel to do things. So the home or, or the hotel is, is a, an important part of your stay, but it's not the real be and end or where you go. And so the natural evolution from staying in a home is experiences, things to do. And so Airbnb had a captive audience of people who were traveling in huge volumes every night. You know, in some cases, uh, you know, two million people a night at the height of the year during, uh, during the Christmas and, and New Year period. Those people want to do stuff. They want to do things. And so it became a natural extension to be able to, uh, in some ways, upsell people and say, well, you're staying uh, in this area. You're traveling. Why not go and do something really interesting uh, with the time that you have? What was the biggest challenge in driving that attach rate of experiences? Well, I think some of the, there's lots of reasons, actually. I think that Airbnb had by then, even but when we launched experiences back in was it 2016, it had become a verb and a noun for staying in a home. 
So you're really almost having to reposition what Airbnb is and, and, and make it much more broad, right? So when people come, they don't necessarily associate Airbnb with going and, and learning how to cook paella or uh, going on a walking tour of Barcelona, right? So it was about a, re- a little bit of repositioning. Also, you have a very successful business on, on the home side, and then every time you, you start a new business, doesn't matter what business it's in, you're having to get a little bit of a a little bit of traction, you, you need to give up something about the core business, either that's real estate on the homepage or promotion. And so incubating that smaller business within a, a huge business is, is always a little bit of a challenge. But I think it made a lot of sense because, like you say, we have uh, Airbnb, we had so many people staying in homes that you only need to convert a small percentage of those into experiences to ultimately create a large, a large business. Well, what was the biggest challenge in driving conversion the biggest challenge in driving conversion i think as i said i think getting people to understand what an experience is because experience is a really broad overused term what does experience mean because i think some people associate the airbnb experience with staying in a home it's the experience of staying with someone in their house right well actually what we're saying is it's things to do so i think there was a communication challenge initially around doing that and getting people more comfortable with taking that brand extension from Airbnb from just accommodations into actually things to do. So I think the biggest conversion area is education. So there was a lot of uh, effort and energy spent initially in the merchandising of the experiences, you know, whether the photography, we've experimented with videos, uh, making sure it was clear for people, how we categorized experiences, the type of experience. So there was a lot of experimentation that was happening at the beginning. And, you know, a fair few things didn't work. But over time, I think we sort of worked out what the recipe was in terms of the types of experiences people want to do and then when to talk to them in the product so you could then convert those people. And don't forget, you didn't have to book uh, a home to then book an experience. You know, independently, people could book experiences from homes. It just happened that it was obvious that once you booked a home, you were a, you were a target audience to then convert into an experience. But they're also quite different user journeys, I, I assume, right? Because if I'm booking an Airbnb, I don't typically also want to book the experiences and stuff to do each night at the time. I'm just looking for a firstly a place to stay and then maybe a month later or two months later, I come back for an experience. So it, do you see them as two different journeys or, or, or was it one part of a longer user journey for that? They're certainly not part of the same user journey. It depends on segment. I think if you're, say, a holiday maker and you booked your Airbnb three months ahead and as part of that journey, you get to book, you know, you get to a choice of experiences to book, uh, that, that can be seen as more part of that flow, if you like. But it doesn't always work like that. A lot of people booking experiences like to book experiences at the last minute. And don't forget, when you go and generally when you go and stay somewhere, you have to lay your head down and sleep somewhere, right? So the accommodation part is a must-buy, whereas going on the food tour is not a must-buy. So there's a certain amount of discretionary element to experiences, which wasn't necessarily the same for accommodations, right? You need, if you're going to that place, you need X number of nights to stay there. But it was hugely varied. And I think one of the things when you learn launching a new business, you learn a lot in the first few months um, and that... You know, the, the importance of having data and really understanding your customers was, was critical key. And I think when we launched, there were some examples where things didn't, didn't quite work and we had to pivot quite quickly. What did you learn about how customers behaved around the experiences in, in the early days? Yeah, I think in the early days, we probably made them a little bit too rigid. So we had experiences that the price point was probably a bit too high. So we were pu- pushing experiences at like two, $250. They were fantastic experiences. They were like, learn how to uh, be a samurai 
with a samurai expert in Tokyo, right? And, and they were over three days and they were, you know, three hours on the first day and two hours on the second day. Now, the problem with that is they were almost cinematic and they, they followed this kind of story or journey. The problem is if you're going to Tokyo for three or four days, you, do you have those precise times available? No. So I think we went down the route of probably being a bit too cinematic in, initially. And then what we did is we adapted very quickly to sort of make them look more bite-sized, still keep the quality, which is really important, but, you know, a three-hour experience at $50, $50 or $40, get people involved, get people, make them easier to book, uh, more accessible, if you like. I think that was the, the key sort of learning in the first few months. So we pivoted a lot to those types of experiences, but without losing any of the quality and the excitement around uh, around the sort of the overall experience you get from the host. But the users, did they book the experiences typically before they arrived at the destination or, or when they were or during the stay typically it varied actually it depended on um, what the booking window was on accommodations and i'd highlight also again that actually we had a lot of repeat bookers who didn't book accommodation necessarily because you could book in your own locality as well so if you lived in london you could book other experiences. You don't necessarily need to be traveling or staying in an Airbnb. So there were very different use cases. And one of the things we tried, which, which were, f- were phenomenal experiences, was the concerts we did. Uh, we did these small kind of concerts that were, you know, 30, 50 pers- people uh, in size. Uh, I remember the Hidden Jazz Club was a really classic one where there were type several of these around the world that were, were on Airbnb where 40 or 50 people in a really unusual place with really high quality jazz musicians for a couple of hours there was some drinks on a bar there but in an unusual location really really done really nicely and then those sort of things i think about 50 percent of the people who went to those were locals actually not necessarily traveling so they weren't staying so it was a, it was a, it was definitely a mixed bag and the goal i think was to get people who were traveling on an airbnb to try an experience and then when they go back to their hometown or when they've got friends coming into town then go and encourage them to try an experience as well how did you acquire those customers specifically that weren't then booking a room? It's just brand affinity and, you know, word of mouth. They, they just know Airbnb and they just, they're, they're visiting organically. Yeah. Word of mouth was, I mean, obviously we did marketing. We had a marketing team and, and we were, you know, pushing out PR was a, a big thing that we did. We had some remarkable in, in very interesting experiences, unusual stuff on the platform. Don't forget, it was an open marketplace in some senses so that people could apply to list and then would there be a, a really a stringent vetting process. But because we didn't sort of mandate what we were looking for and we allowed stuff to come onto the platform, we got some really unusual and talkable experiences. I remember going on a, in LA doing a OJ Simpson in a white Bronco, uh, drive uh, a sunset you know which was an, quite a controversial experience that we had on the platform but was really interesting by one of the world's leading expert in the oj case right so there were there was lots of pr around all sorts of weird and wonderful experiences on the platform so that that also created a lot of interest around some of these concerts that we did around all sorts of unusual you know there was a, i remember there was a, a taxidermy experience with a vegan taxidermist and uh, you know, all sorts of weird and wonderful talkable stuff. So what we were aiming for was a, a supply that wasn't run of the mill. You know, sure, you have your walking tours and your food tours and your more vanilla stuff, but you always had that kind of real interest talkability in some of the experiences. It wasn't always, you know, just a, a, a walking tour, a walking up the Eiffel Tower and, you know, jump the queue. That we, were, we were not trying to aim for that kind of positioning. I want to get into supply in, in a second, but it, it does seem like it's a, well, it could be a standalone product itself. I mean, you obviously you have Get Your Guide, which 
kind of does the same thing standalone. But what challenges do you think Airbnb faces? I know you mentioned the education point, but is there any other challenges that Airbnb faces where you, you have kind of two, two different products or experiences on, on one platform? Yeah, I think, uh, some of it is you don't want to confuse the overall user. You have a very big, strong core business, right? That you don't want to put in, you don't want to weaken by having a, a new product. You don't want to plaster the, the experience with this new product to the detriment of the existing experience. And you have these, you, you know, you have a, a big user base that's used to Airbnb being a, a, an accommodations business primarily. So you, I think you have to, you have to evolve into this. And I think that was a big challenge, uh, initially until you sort of get up and running and it sort of becomes a bit more of the norm. And I remember when we first started getting people talking about it organically on radio about, uh, in the U S it was, you know, Oh, I've been on one of these Airbnb experiences and I did X, Y, and Z. So it, it starts to create a little bit of life of its own. You know, then you sort of hit on a rich vein, but until that point, you're really sort of, it's really about that, that word about education. That here's what you can do. And also the choice in, in terms of where you launch, right? You know, we decided Airbnb accommodations was a completely open platform. We had, I think I remember the, we had sort of like 40 accommodations in about 40,000 homes in about 40,000 cities. When we launched experiences, we launched in 12 cities and it wasn't a completely, so we, it was much more of a curated type marketplace versus a completely open marketplace for homes. And so you could be a lot more deliberate about where you target your marketing and to get that recipe exactly right, get that supply mix correct. Was, it, was that mainly because of the supply side, the challenges in getting the supply side right, that you only had to focus in certain cities? Yeah, we had a view on what a good supply mix is. You know, I mean, uh, you know, if you, I, I keep giving the example of Barcelona. If you go to Barcelona, you you know, this is, it's a very historic city, city so you can, and it's known for its food, its sport to some degree, football. So I remember we had a really cool experience where you could go and play football with a load of locals uh, for like, I think it was nine euros or something. And it was just a simple thing. Like, how else would you do that, right, when you were traveling in Barcelona? Now, you wouldn't, having that, those experiences in the US and just replicating them didn't really make sense, right? So each city almost had its unique, unique product mix that we wanted to create. So we, we really sort of curated that initially and then sort of allowed it to breathe a little bit and then allow for competition over time. And we used to call that the paella problem a little bit, actually, because and you, end, you don't want to end up having 50 paella experiences in Barcelona. Uh, you've got to have the right mix so you're not overwhelmed with almost the cliches of the city. Um, so you, you want to have a, a mix but not be strictly adhering to just the cultural norms. You know, you want to throw in some other stuff as well. It could end up being a pretty valuable position being the only paella host on Airbnb in Barcelona. <laughs> it could be, but I think that some of the hosts were making very good money, right? So... You know, if you get a winning formula, you get great reviews and, and people, the word of mouth then becomes quite big. And what we actually found is, you know, someone on their first day of their trip might take a great, you know, a, a great walking tour. And then the hosts got to know each other as that sense of community and they'd recommend each other. And so then you'd get sort of multiple bookings on that trip because people would talk, the hosts talk to each other and recommend each other's uh, experiences. So that for us also, part of the recipe was creating a community and we invested quite a lot of money and an effort and time in, in developing those communities, both in real life, so on the ground, in communities where we had meetups and things like that, as well as uh, on, on digital and online as well. How would you describe the difference in the supply side with Airbnb versus the other competitors? I get your guide and 
some of the standalone experience platforms? I think we had a very fixed, and this came from, from the, the leadership at the company, a very clear view of what we wanted to be and what we didn't want to be. And that's not to degrade other, other competitors, but we didn't want to be the, although we knew we would sell a lot of tickets of jump the queue or, uh, uh, for the Eiffel Tower, that's not primarily what we wanted. We want really authentic host led experiences. And this came from the fact that the very best experiences, what people remember is not necessarily the experience, but the host, right? And we see that come through in the reviews. You'd see a lot of reviews where they name the person like Bob or Jane did X, Y, and Z. And that keeps coming through in the reviews and, 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 the overwhelming feeling was in a year's time or two years time, they won't remember exactly which food tour they did or what, where they went to cycling, you know, all the spots they stopped. They'll remember the other guests and the host and how they made them feel. So we, we, we were differentiating ourselves a little bit in that way. So we, we did a lot of host training. We didn't just accept everything onto the platform. We had a, a quite a stringent quality set of quality metrics that we, we looked at when we were onboarding supply. So we had a very clear view and we probably lost some sales from that perspective because we didn't sell just what was popular. We were trying to broaden the canvas of what people felt they could be, how they could be spending their time, introducing them to new things and, and getting to be a little bit more daring. Roughly what percentage of experienced hosts are also room hosts? Yeah, it's actually surprisingly low amount. So it was about 25%, I think I seem to remember. So you thought, oh, these are all home hosts who have become experienced hosts. Well, actually, no, the minority were home hosts. That's not to say it wasn't a rich vein of, of, of opportunity to have all these home hosts. What you have to remember is before experiences were launched, a lot of home hosts were kind of doing these things organically anyway. So you might go and stay with someone, and there was a sizable number of percentage of people would say, going down to the riverside and I'm going to be doing some yoga, do you want to come with me or you know, whatever the experiences that they, they know, I'm going, I'm a photographer and I'm a, or a designer and I'm going, I'm going out and taking some photos. You want to come with me? And, and so these were things that were happening since the inception of Airbnb to some degree. I think what happened when we launched the actual experiences brand and, and, and as a, as a business unit, we were kind of codifying that, but the vast majority of hosts were actually new to the platform. They weren't even home hosts which is really encouraging because um, what we're looking for is this uh, people with talent they wanted to share. A lot of people wanted to do it infrequently. They wanted to do it once a month. Some people wanted to do it daily or twice a day and make more businesses out of it. So it was a real mixed bag. What about the mix between, call them the individual hosts and like the professional host, i.e. the professional host being visit the Eiffel Tower company? Yeah, I think uh, the majority of hosts were individuals actually. Uh, and that's, and there was always a place for professional hosts on the platform. For, of course, we weren't, uh, we weren't, uh, turning away hosts, but there's something authentic about an individual who has a real interest. I remember going on one in London, a history tour. Uh, Dave, I think his name is, and, you know, really interesting two or three hour history walk. He's a re- he's an amateur historian, huge amount of knowledge for the area. Locals and travelers were coming on these tours. Is it a business? I think he makes money out of it, but it's a real passion for him. So we didn't want to flood the, the supply just with professional companies. Not that there's anything wrong with that because they, a lot of them provide a great experience, but I think the personality and dimensions of, of a, a great experience often dictate that there's some consistency to, to the experience, right? And that's really coming from the host most of the time. I mean, the things we looked at were in terms of thinking about quality was what we call hostiness, right? Was it, how does how does that host interact with the guests? Do they introduce everyone to each other? 
initially? Do they get the group to bond? You know, do they make you really feel good about what you're doing? Do they, are they helpful? You know, all that stuff. Then there's the type of access that they can give you, right? Are they, um, are you getting something you can't get somewhere else? Right. That was, that was something that was really important. And then what's their expertise? You know, you, you don't want someone giving you, teaching you sushi making who've just learned the week before how to do it. So we, we've, uh, there was quite a bit of vetting process and, and the person responsible for the supply with our, with our team. There was a, a quite a, an important vetting process that we did to actually get the supply onboarded, which obviously slowed down your, your onboarding of supply, but really made sure the quality was there. I mean, the, the leadership in the company always used to say, you know, quality drives growth, not the other way around. And I think that's a good, a good thing to take into any business, actually. You know, if, if you provide a quality product, people will talk about it and your new growth will come naturally. Whereas if you do things just to get the growth, then over time, what happens is you degrade the quality. How, ex- what, what percentage of the host reckon are exclusive to Airbnb versus also on others? I don't know, actually. I don't know now. It's been a couple of years since I've been there, but um, I think we had a lot of hosts who were pretty loyal to what we were doing because we were doing it in a certain way. We were extremely supportive of the hosts. We dedicated resource in the community, and they were there, especially the ones who were there from the beginning or the early stages. They sort of grew, grew with us, and that was, that was kind of really, really encouraging. Of course, there are other platforms there, but they also knew Airbnb brought a huge amount of traffic and um, opportunity for them to grow there grow their, their business or their passion. Because when we look at Airbnb, obviously the, the rooms business, I think it's clear that they have somewhat unlocked capacity in the travel industry, right? Of these residential homes or people with, with their homes opening up, which are typically not on booking.com or any other professional vacation rental home platform. But it seems to be easier for, you know, someone doing yoga or a history tour to go also on get your guide or trip advisor or any other platform that's offering this type of stuff. How do you look at the potential stickiness or exclusivity of the experience host versus the room hosts? Yeah, I, I think there are other platforms on both rooms and for accommodations and experiences. There's a couple of dimensions here which we found. One is we found that the experience hosts in particular who used other platforms really like the Airbnb guest. They saw something different in the Airbnb guest Maybe that was because they're a bit more, you know, and this is obviously a mass generalization here, but we heard it a lot, which was the, the guests tended to be a little bit more adventurous, a little bit easier to get on with, more social, et cetera. So that was a, a plus point. So that sort of a lot made a lot of hosts gravitate towards us. They liked the quality of the guests that they had uh, who were staying in Airbnbs because don't forget at the early stage in Airbnb as well. Staying in an Airbnb was quite a big thing to do. Now it's, it seems like it's become the norm, right? But it wasn't always so. The other thing is when experience hosts, you can list on 25 platforms, but then do you really want to manage 25 calendar tools and 25, you know, it's, it gets a big mess. So it's a law of diminishing returns on some of these platforms. And so, you know, it, it, it's not an easy way to aggregate across Airbnb and all the others. So there was, there's always that danger in these situations of becoming commodified. But I think there was enough differences in terms of what we were trying to do, where for, for a large percentage of the of the hosts, they they wanted to work with us. And of course, the proof's in the pudding, right? If you don't deliver guests and bookings, then you know you, you don't you don't deserve to be exclusive, right? So you need to. You, but the, the experienced hosts weren't necessarily all professionals, so 
you know, some of them might do it, I say, once a month or once every two weeks and for three hours and they might have six guests, you know. So it really depended on the host and the, the sector and, and in some cases the country or, or the region. How did you on board, you know, find, find the hosts? Initially, when we were seeding each market, we had kind of a view of what we wanted to see in the market, you know, and you might want, say, 50 or 80 or 100 quality experiences in the market to start with. And you might say, hey, well, 30% of these in the food area, 20% in the, you know, historic monuments area, you know, 30% on the activities of sporting side or et cetera. So you have a kind of a view of a supply mix. And then actually, initially what you do is you, is a lot of kind of, I would say pounding the pounding pavement type work on, on digital as well, right? So not necessarily knocking on doors, but it, it's um, using networks, using a lot of desk research, contacting people, doing the hard yards to kind of seed the market. And then over time, word gets around and once you launch a market and, and people can see act, economic activity and value, not just economic value, but also the pleasure a lot of experienced hosts, they love hosting, sharing, a lot of them love sharing what they what their skill or their passion is and also if they can make money on it great but once that started to happen then you start to see this kind of natural growth where you you know you get thousands of uh thousands every week of, of people applying to become experienced hosts you know and we opened it up and we kind of we would open up a market and then get people to apply and then we'd vet the experiences but going online with, with an experience doesn't matter what platform you're doing you know there's a certain amount of work you need to do to get your experience up you know you need to have good a picture paints a thousand words, so you really need, you know, really enticing visual images of what that experience is. You need to set your price, your calendar, have a really good description. You need to make sure when necessary, you've got the right uh, licenses to, to do what you say you're doing. And so, and there's a lot of checks that went on in the background. So it was a initially, you know, uh, a very kind of, uh, I wouldn't say convoluted, but certainly a rigorous process to get people onboarded. And then over time, it creates a kind of life of its own. I mean, I'm I'm looking now on Airbnb for London, you know, in a two months experiences. There's not actually that many. I mean, did you need like what's the rough number that you'd have for a? For example, I'm here. I'm assuming I'm doing the search right, but you know, London, 17th of April. There's 24 experiences for tours only, which seems quite low. But is that so? Are we looking in like the hundreds for the only the experiences, and you've got more like a dense enough product or not? Well, I think what you what you've got to do is the accommodation is a bit of a false proxy, right? Because generally speaking, you could stay in a place that can ha- have two or three people and, you, and it's one night. Whereas, let's say, a tour, you might have 12 or 15 people and they might do it twice a day, right? So you might have 10x or 15x the number of opportunity slots to run an experience, right? And then you don't actually, you don't, don't want the paella problem of having 50. An interesting you know, thing is you... You don't want to, if you have too many experiences of exactly the same experiences, you completely commodify it and then it's just a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. So you want that real nice balance where you actually want, you want your host to fill out and, and for them to make it economically viable. You don't want everyone having one person on their tour, right? So what, what happens is you, you generate this natural equilibrium and this balance between the right number of supply and the, the right, the, the right number of supply and the right number of demand in a market. And then there's seasonality that comes into place. Obviously, when you're looking now, I haven't looked for a while, but it's post COVID, you know, the international tourism has, has declined. And that's actually the experiences, a lot of experience went online. There's a lot, of, I think, I believe Airbnb did a lot of um, digital online experiences, which made a lot of sense. 
But I think as we're coming out of the as we're coming out of this period, it's going to change. No, I think that that could certainly be a factor in that it's post COVID and and no one's we're just getting back to face to face contact. So, but but just in terms of the you know how you thought about merchandising then, which I think is particularly interesting. So, so if we if we look at a scaled experience product, you know, take London for example, you know, would you literally pick one or two hosts for specific history walks around certain areas or and that becomes more like an exclusive position for that person or because you don't want to you don't want to have the commoditization effect so how did you think about merchandising certain cities i think this is where reviews come into really important what you don't want to do is over prescribe what the user wants right so although i said there's a supply mix this is kind of a generalized view right so if you don't have if you've got 100 experiences or 200 experiences in Barcelona, you've only got one food experience. That's probably not right, right? Because, you know, it should be whatever, 30% of it, whatever, let's say. So you have some general thoughts about what the right supply mix and the types of categories that are going to be more important than others. But outside of that, you need to allow a little bit of organic uh, nature to happen, right? So you want um, – because you're going to have some real hits in there. You're going to have things that really take off. I remember one of the big experiences, one of the biggest experiences in the world for us, was in Seattle, was walking with the wolves at the time, where you could literally this, this guy a couple of hours, I think, outside Seattle, where he had this wolf sanctuary and you could literally walk with them uh, in, in the forest and, and they were experts on wolves. And it was an amazing Instagrammable kind of experience that people would fly into to do, right? So nobody said, hey, we need a wolf walking experience, right, uh, in, in the business. <laughs> These things kind of applied and happened and all, that was organic. So we had a significant amount of people who worked with the hosts and worked in the cities who would be like city experts and they'd work with the hosts to develop them. So I think it was, it was a little bit, um, a little bit organic, a little bit structured to start with and then more organic. And then what comes onto the platform, it builds traction. And then it highlighted the importance of the reviews, right? Because like most e-commerce products, people look, whether it's Amazon or, booking.com or airbnb whatever the reviews are critical and important so we put a lot of effort into the review system and coming back to your point about merchandising making sure that we put in front of people the not just the most popular but a mix of popular things that were really noteworthy things that that didn't necessarily have mass appeal but would just sort of brand the airbnb experiences as something a little bit different you could always generally go there and sure you'd find your walking tools and and your typical things in london but then there'd be some one or two really unusual things that people want to go on so it's really catering for kind of a broad audience and you can tell that when you look at the when you're on the site versus get your guide or some of the others i mean airbnb a great highlighting the host specifically about and that they actually drive the experience here. Yeah. yeah, the host is really central to this. And that's why it's really important. Uh, one of the things we looked at was make sure the hosts don't fatigue, right? Because, uh, you know, if, if someone's doing the same thing three times a day for months on end, inevitably that, that can be degraded a little bit. So, you know, there wasn't this huge push to, you know, open up every single day. And, you know, you, you wanted that what was really important was that people had a brilliant experience and you were thinking about the lifetime value of the customer than them recommending, oh, you should do these Airbnb experiences because they're a little bit different. And so that what we were trying to do is scale quality, which is a, a big challenge for, for a lot of businesses, right? Usually you're, you know, you can have scale, but you can't have quality. So, you know, trying to, trying to do both of those things at the same time became kind of like the, the business growth challenge. It could also be detrimental to the rooms business if you don't get it right in terms of the quality. Yeah. 
I think well, whenever you're under a brand, whenever a brand launches a second business or a third business, I'm sure when Amazon went moved out of books, there was always that worry that, you know, there's always that worry initially when you launch a new business. But it's also much harder, right? Because you've got more, you've got more variables, right? You've got the host's mood when they wake up on the morning or they had a bad night's sleep, you know, whereas at least the room you can, you know, you can tidy it and it's kind of a fixed structure, right? So it seems like it's much more harder to get the quality or manage the very, very moving parts of the experiences versus the, the rooms business. Well, it's a good observation. Yeah. I mean, almost the Airbnb experiences was almost more Airbnb than the accommodations, right? Because when the very early stages of Airbnb, it was about staying with the host in the single room and getting to know them. And then over time, as it just built out into a very large business, there's more, more, more often than not, you're, you never see the host, right? Whereas when you get back to experiences, the, the, the host is the experience, really, right? So you're not spending time on your own. Yes, the other guests matter, but it's really the, the experience host that determines how successful that's going to be. Because uh, you're spending time with somebody, um, and that's important time that you have, right? It's, uh, it's, you know, when you're going on a trip, you're going to remember how you spent your time there, and if you have a, a negative experience there, you're going to look at the brand that sort of provided that. So it's really important for us that we spend a lot of effort and energy on the host and having the right host and having the right host training uh, in place. Uh, although it was obviously an open, an open platform. What, what was the biggest challenge? scaling the supply side for experiences often it's the more mundane things that are more challenging right getting people with really good images i mean even on the homes business or even that you know it doesn't matter if it's booking.com or hotels or whatever if the picture's not very good you make a lot of judgments about the image versus the actual experience right so you'd having the right uh, content and making sure that images reflect the experience and so you know you can go down the user-generated content mode, but the quality isn't always there, but it's a little bit more authentic. So how do you get that kind of right balance where you're not overselling what the experience is, but it needs to be accurate, but it also needs to be inspiring. So I think getting that right, getting the copy right, getting the descriptors right, just getting it on the platform in a way that was presentable, given that we're not, these are not employees, right? They're the hosts. We weren't people we can tell what to do. It's, it's a platform that they're joining. They're independent. So uh, encouraging them to spend time and energy to represent themselves best on the platform was probably one of the, the big challenges. What about finding new hosts? Not so much a problem. I think as we delivered more and more users, you know, with these huge, obviously one of the reasons to join Airbnb experiences is that you've got all these people staying in homes. So I think you have a natural gravitational pull of people wanting to... We weren't shortage, short of, of people applying to be hosts. Once we got going, there was just huge... There's was, was often initially a backlog of people that we needed to talk to. There was a submission process. So I don't think finding uh, finding the hosts uh, was, was the challenge. What was the acceptance rate roughly? If I apply for a host, what's the... I don't recall, actually. I think it initially it was very low because we were... We're very heavily curating what was on there initially, and we had a kind of backlog. But over time, as we learned more about the business and what worked and what didn't, the acceptance rates, acceptance rates went up. And obviously, it varied according to the you know the beginning and, and and then over time how it played out in each individual market. How do you compare Airbnb experiences versus, I guess, the alternative, right? Which one one alternative is just, I guess. 
organically visiting the city and, and, and going about and booking stuff in the town or in the city itself, uh, you know, at a kiosk or whatever it may be, the, the organic approach versus call it head to head competitors and get your guide and other players that offer very similar, you know, offerings at least on, on, the, on the surface. Well, I mean, I, I don't work for Airbnb now, so I, I'm not speaking for them as a company now, but I don't recall us really thinking heavily about the com- we weren't defining ourselves by the competitors, and I think that's an important thing for any business. Uh, you, you, need, you need to understand what the competitors are doing, but we saw ourselves building a different type of business, and you know, to some degree, we were missing out on some of the obvious low-hanging fruit of, of a lot of sort of monuments and landmarks. You know, when we were doing landmarks, we wanted to do them in a very different way. So, competitors, I, I don't think we were less. We were trying to be the best version of ourselves, right? Which is the biggest challenge. Of what we thought we could be versus versus comparing the competitors, but the consumer works in the dynamic of the whole market, so we know that there's competitors. Well, we also knew that experiences as a whole was a big. I mean, you've all seen the graphs and, and of, of, of experiences and, and thing experiences, not things. Concept and experience economy is just huge. So there's there's plenty of unspent time, and people generally go to a restaurant or a pub or a sports game or watch Netflix, right? So there's a whole area here of, of unexploited area where you can really entice people into doing unusual things so the market was well big enough and as i said i think we were less worried about competitors and more worried about just having really high quality experiences in terms of organically it's an offline industry generally there's a lot of that didn't realize how big an offline industry it was so even having people who were providing experiences previously and offering them that platform where there's insurances and customer service and access to a, a load of users and, and community was also a big thing. So I think uh, that help, helped that idea of moving an offline market online. You know, we weren't as arrogant as to say we were the only only uh, only only company to do that, but we were offering a, a key a key way of uh, people being able to go online and, and then be successful. So that these were experiences hosts. They didn't necessarily want to run a business online or run websites or we were their home online. And in return for the fees, they could generate large amounts of business with us and, um, and share their passion. And that was positive. And what was the revenue model then like between the take rate of the guest and the, and the host for experiences? Yeah, so I think it's 20%. At the time, we're charging 20%. I think it's still the case for the host. So that, you know, obviously we'd have the, we take the payment charges, we'd have the customer service, we do the marketing, we'd have the tool set, the calendar, et cetera, all that stuff. Right? And then what we do, so if you were running an experience and it was, it was $100 or £100, you know, we'd, we'd charge 20 of that and then we'd take the funds from the guest and then 24 hours after the experience is run, we'd then remit that payment back to the, back to the host. So it was also good. We didn't keep the host waiting too long for their money, but also we protected the guest to make sure everything was good on got the good on the experience. And no guest fee then. No. Why? Why? Why don't you charge the guest? Would you charge the guest for the room? Yeah. Well, fees have changed actually on the accommodations business. Right, there used to be a bit of a bit of a guest and a bit of host fee on both sides. So when we, when we launched, obviously these are different animals, these different businesses. So when we looked at the experiences business. We looked obviously that's when you do look at competitors in terms of because you have to look at you know what what's the norms here and then can you justify that percentage for what your value you're going to bring but we didn't anchor it around what we were doing on homes uh we anchored it around what was the norm perhaps in the experiences industry and that's just the way we did it well i guess also airbnb can afford to not charge a guest fee because from a lifetime perspective value if they're booking on rooms and, and you look at them both holistically then they're probably 
kind of they they, they fil- filter into each other effectively, where the other's players doesn't have a, a rooms business like Airbnb. Well, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? I mean, uh, there's different ways you can do it. Different companies do it in different ways, and I think uh, we didn't want to put any inhibitors on the guest. And if you provide value to the host and bring them business. You can justify the fee, the take rate you have. It's just a scaling thing in the early days, and we're not charging the guests to drive more demand, get more people doing it. Yeah, word of mouth is an experiences business is an important thing, right? I mean, the reason why I ask is because it seems like the experiences is, I mean, obviously the rooms business is very unique, but this is also equally unique in terms of some of the stuff that's been offered on here. So it does seem like, as a guest, I'd be willing to pay, you know, for for sourcing and finding those people just as much i'd be paid willing to pay for a room so it does seem in the long run there could be an opportunity to charge the guest the token two three four percent yeah who knows who knows that's uh not my call anymore <laughs> so i mean just on, on the take rate then i mean how did you think about optimizing the guest versus the host fee when you was running the core rooms business yeah I think you can make mistakes when you optimize for revenue when you've got a fast growing business, right? So yes, you have to pay attention to revenue, you have to pay for bills and you have shareholders and it doesn't matter what business you're in. But if you optimize for quality experience and uh, repeat uh, and, uh, you know, repeat bookings and lifetime value of the customer, you know, that's, that's the key here. And I think for experiences, we, the metrics we were looking at mostly were around actually the quality and the reviews that we were getting, right? That was the important bit uh, for us. You know, we watched the reviews really carefully because we were trying to create unique experiences for people. Uh, and for us, we looked at, the, as I said, the, these different dimensions on quality that we measured. It was really important for us that we didn't optimize revenue uh, because if you build a big enough scale business that everyone loves, there's plenty of time later to look at the revenue, but um, it was about getting traction and putting the volume of great experiences that people have as denoted by the quality that they see. There's been lots of discussion now around, you know, just in, in, in public and from even when I book an Airbnb of like the add-on fees that 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 this this showing up, right? Service, cleaning, obviously cleaning fee during COVID is, is going to be higher. But how did you think about the the kind of core room rate and then potentially all the add-ons on top was that the host's decision to charge those yeah i mean it's the host right i mean you want to encourage the host to provide good value and that's why having competition is really good right because if you have a large volume of places then it naturally brings down the prices into something of value but you know it it, it wasn't for us to mandate what the cleaning fees are going to be for people they for one thing the costs of cleaning vary massively by country right for a start so as a, as a marketplace um the 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 host the home host sets their own price and they set their they decide what fees to charge uh, aside from the obviously the airbnb fees that were charged and how do you see those take rates evolving then for for like the host on the host because i understand now it's this you know, it's a three four percent for individual hosts and then there's like 15 percent on average for professional it's changed changed a lot since i was last there so yeah i mean their, their public accounts and files are telling all that information now but i can say that when i was there we were mostly focused on the quality of experience what was most important to us is uh people gave good reviews especially when it was quite new to people still generally because people you know people sat around a dinner table where we tried airbnb and people say oh i don't know if i can stay in someone else's house but then someone say well Actually, it was a brilliant experience. I had my own kitchen. It was clean. The host was friendly. 
I'd never get a hotel again. I had two kids. I didn't have to get two hotel rooms, you know. So you want, there's a lot of upsides to Airbnb and you wanted to mitigate some of the perceived downsides. And so it was all about, for us, it was about making sure the quality's there and the word of mouth is there and people have a good, a good first experience. So look at the rooms business specifically. How important do you think the professional inventory is to Airbnb? Uh, well, now, I think it's important for vacation rentals. I mean, I'm, I've just been looking at a holiday with my family and, and you know, in a, in a holiday destination in Greece and there's some great inventory there. A lot of it's professionalized, but it happens to be a location that most of the accommodation on that island is, is professionalized. So uh, you can kind of expect that. It does vary by obviously market. I think, so I think it has an important dimension in place, but I think Airbnb has always been a broad church. There's always been that one little room you can stay in where you can do yoga with the host and, you know, eat muesli in the morning. You know, there's those kind of experiences that exist. Or if you're a business traveler, when business travel was a thing, you know, you would go and uh, stay in a flat and have that for the week and instead of a hotel and, you know, get a kitchen, et cetera. And then there's, you know, the professional vacation supply. I think it's always been a broad church. Was it challenging to onboard the professional vacation rentals versus VRBO home away? Yeah, there's different expectations in terms of how you manage those folks. You know, you have to set up account management teams and uh, work with them, and, and then they you know have, how, how, how do they how does the binning work, and you know what, what, what the expectation is on the tooling, etc. So there is a little bit more, you know, as Airbnb for work, and again, expectations slightly different if you're a company and you're booking. You know, usually you have a hotel booking and now you've got an accommodation booking, but they're the things that all got worked through. I think the point I'm making here is that this supply was always, there was always a large amount of business travel supply on there. And in fact, what we found is a lot of people who, particularly the younger ones, like the, what we used to call millennials, I guess, gen, whatever, why now? <laughs> 10 years ago, we used to call them millennials as if they were young, but millennials are, are not young anymore, right? But the, they were just going and using Airbnb anyway, regardless of what the policy was with their company. And then the company would say, you can't do that. And then that would instigate a discussion with Airbnb and then they implement Airbnb for work and then they'd have a bit more comfort around how it's organized. So these things were happening out organically on the platform and then they got more codified over time and more organized around them. But I think overall, the whole platform, there was always a reasonable amount of that going on anyway. A lot of people traveling for business and uh, using Airbnb because they just found it more convenient. And if you're a, a consultant and you're doing a two-month consultancy in a foreign country, you don't really want to be in a hotel for two months. So a lot of that was happening anyway. So that, that's kind of, kind of a different journey also. I mean, let, I'm talking specifically about you, the, like you, you shopping for a holiday with your family, like a vacation rental, typical you know, holiday, two weeks, whatever, 10 days in typically a beach resort. Greece, you know, wherever. How differentiated can Airbnb really get for those in, in for those locations? Uh, I'm not sure that the actual accommodation is going to be hugely differentiated because these might be listed in multiple places, right? But then, you know, I, I, I've got the choice. I know I'm, a, I'm an ex-employee, but I've got the choice of a place I was looking at to book it directly or book it through Airbnb. Actually, I'm probably going to book it through Airbnb because the reviews, the insurance just it's on the platform i understand it direct you know i don't you know i mean obviously people go off the platform and book directly with some of these companies if it's listed in multiple places but i think bringing together the experience in one place if you're a consistent user of airbnb makes a lot of sense i think the big change recently has been 
not so much the people haven't really been going on holiday much recently. It's more long stays has been really something that the company, as I understand it, is really, it was always something that was cool, right? People would, even before COVID, there were people sort of living on Airbnb, actually. We knew quite a few people who lived on Airbnb. They didn't, they sold their house. And uh, there's quite a few stories if you Google them. People we know who came in and did some internships at the company. We had these senior interns. They wrote a book about it, actually. There was these senior interns that came in. They were in their 50s or 60s and they they sold their house and basically lived on Airbnb and just went from city to city. So that was always happening. And I think maybe COVID has accelerated that with the more flexible work, you know, the flexible working environment. So people are, you know, I think they measure it as the 28 or 30 days. Um, There's 25% bookings. of bookings now, I think Chesley said. In. I think it's probably more than that at the moment. Yeah, probably. I, I, I didn't look at the last numbers, but I think it's gone up. Do you think that's sustainable? I think it might actually be a really sweet spot for the company because hotel, no one wants to spend in a hotel 28 days in a hotel and Airbnb being the, being, you know, the strong player in this market with the biggest, broadest opportunity. I don't see, well, it's, it's, it's an opinion, right? But I, I, I don't believe that we're going to go back to completely five days a week in the office for the foreseeable future. And many companies, including the company I'm at now, have a policy of you can work anywhere in the world for six weeks of the year, as an example. You know, if you're going to work anywhere in the world for six weeks, you know, Airbnb is a great, a great opportunity to book. So I think it opens up a whole new realm for them for bookings. And, and I think that's obviously come, that's showing in the numbers now, probably for them, uh, longest days, but I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon from what I can see. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking of the competition because, you know, for example, I was searching for going on a stag do and booking a stag do and, you know, looking for a typical house, 15, 20 people. And, you know, I did go on Airbnb, VRBO, Homeway, all these different platforms and they are kind of similar. You know, they have similar inventory, maybe slightly different, but I guess different availability. So how, how do you see? Do you just assume that that's kind of commoditized inventory and that's going to be on all the platforms in those, you know, beach resort areas? You know, there's not really much room to differentiate in the long run there. Or how do you look at really Airbnb's opportunity to differentiate on the professional inventory for vacation rooms? I think there's other services potentially you can add right over time, you know, whether it's experiences or transportation even. I mean, how, how do you get to somewhere? What do you do when you're there? Where do you stay? You know, there was, always a vision, you know, Brian Chesky was always very public about saying the end-to-end trip was really important. Uh, Pre-COVID anyway, that was something that the company was public about aspiring to being the end-to-end trip and Airbnb in a unique position to be able to offer that end-to-end trip. That's something that I, I presume post the pandemic is something that a lot of companies will be interested in, right? So when, you, when you're providing multiple products on, on that wallet, you can add extra dimensions to that, right? So the the whole is is greater than the sum of the parts. Well, they closed down, didn't they? Flights and they were doing flights and I think flights globally closed down, <laughs> didn't they? So yeah, yeah. So but that, but you know, I think transportation now is something that I think the world is coming alive again. Uh, touch wood, and we're seeing that ourselves in our current company going out now. You can see people this huge pent up demand to travel, right? And maybe travel has changed. Maybe there'll be a little bit more distributed travel. You know, people have got more used to sort of going to more, getting to know their own country a little bit more as well. I mean, uh, it's not just about people going to Paris or from from New York, but, you know, 
it's going to some of these smaller towns across across these markets and a lot more distributed localized travel and that plays into airbnb strengths actually because if you if you if you look at any sort of heat map of of where the inventory is yes it's probably true right in certain holiday spots a lot of people the inventory is quite similar but when you go further off the beaten track you know you see where airbnb has a lot of inventory how, how did you see that evolve then like, take take the apec region like how did you see because obviously you know there's certain I don't know, Bali and these hotspots in, in in Asia that typically always have demand. How did you see that change over time with Airbnb? Did you, did you see it becoming more distributed or was it always like, I don't know, 10% of all demand is going to go to Bali f- throughout the year in APEC, for example? But it becomes really distributed at a user level. So what you see is probably two dimensions. One is distributed and the other one is, is domestic. So let me explain that. So... Let's take Sydney, right? Sydney was always a big adopter as a user of, um, of, of when they went abroad uh, using Airbnbs. Australian mentality will give it a go, right? So one of the, I think, I think, seem to remember the Qantas, you know, in any given Qantas flight going to Paris from Sydney, there was a significant amount of uh, significant amount of people staying on Airbnb, right? But what would happen is those people would maybe try Airbnb in Paris or there's romantic view of staying in a, you know, little pied de terre in the centre of Paris. When they got back, you know, they would then take a trip to Melbourne or their mother-in-law would come in and stay and they want to rent an Airbnb or something and they start to use it more domestically. So what you saw over time is a shift from purely international, people using Airbnb internationally, to then having that experience and then saying, well, when I'm travelling locally, which is many more of your trips than, than international, you would start to use it there in other cities, right? And we've all seen that behavior. And then the second dimension, it becomes more distributed. So maybe it's not just between the major cities, you start to see critical mass. And we saw, you know, early on in the homes business, and, and this was even before my time, one of our founders, Nate, used to say that once you get to sort of 300 homes in a, a town or a city, you start to see a tipping point where it kind of takes a life of its own. But you've got to kind of seed it. So you, you need to see critical mass there. Just earlier on, you were talking about how many walking tours can I see in London on April the 17th? You know, if you go to a, a place on a, any marketplace platform and you don't see any content or inventory, you know, it's a ghost town. You're not going to be able to build it. And that's the big challenge of building any marketplace. As you know, right? Once you've got to get, um, I was reading this book, the cold, the cold start problem, which I don't know if you've looked at that. It's, it's you know, the guy who writes that, he worked at Uber, same sort of problem. It's, it's classic challenge of building a marketplace. But once you build that and you get that flywheel going, it becomes incredibly powerful. And I think that's what happened with Airbnb because it went global instantaneously, really. And, you know, started with a couple of spots. We used to have this great um, presentation which showed every year the amount of Airbnbs around the world. And you just saw this kind of, it was almost, you know, I hate that wrong analogy now, but almost like a virus, virus effect, right? But it was, um, and it was amazing because you just see the network effect in action. And it's one of the most networked businesses there are, right? Um, and it's, uh, you could see that happening. So the, the natural distribution to having a critical mass in, in many of these markets, in these lesser known markets was, was really quite big. That's what I think is also so unique about Airbnb specifically is that it's, it's also growing like Uber. It's growing the market. It's growing capacity. It's unlocking new, new supply. You know, like you said, my residential property in out of London is is a new accommodation. How much do those really matter, though? Because, like you said, if you if we look at the total travel pie, I don't know, even though it's going to grow, but you know, one trillion dollars, for example, short term stays. I think they mentioned like 
how much of that percentage was roughly is like your traditional city breaks, vacation resort breaks versus like how much does this, does my residential property even matter really in the long run? It depends on segment because Airbnb is such a broad church. It has many of these segments embedded and they flex up or down depending on the market conditions. When I say market conditions, it could be seasonality, right? So obviously in the summer, in the Northern hemisphere, you know, if you've got, you know, vacation is going to be huge, right? You just take off, right? In the Southern hemisphere, not so, bad, not, not so much, right? And then obviously in, in, in typical times of business travel, huge or another dimension is events, right? Um, you used to see, you know, it could be an event like Mobile World Congress for in, in Barcelona to, you know, Golden Week, you know, in China or, or, or in, um, you know, sorry, in, in, or, 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 you know, the Cherry Blossom used to be a big one in Japan, right? You, that April, May period, you know, you just see ups and ups and downs of, of supply and demand happen. So because Airbnb wasn't built on one niche, or maybe it was initially, I guess, with designers staying in each other's homes, but it quickly become mainstream. It means that as things dial up and down, you're kind of protected as a business a little bit, right? Because even though international travel right now is still harder and that's still down, even now, as we speak today, the it's made up for the fact that people are going and staying 30 days plus more often than they used to because the dynamics have changed. So you have this kind of evening out this robustness in the model because it's so metric. Yeah, so it can dial up and flex. And uh, you know, Airbnb was such a great business because it was born in a born in a uh, recession. So actually, as things come more constrained and more people need money more, they host more. You know, if if people get squeezed by inflation and, and uh, costs, then you've got the spare room rented out. Why don't you host it? You know, a couple of times a month. So there's a there's a, I'm not saying it's completely recession proof, but the company was always uh, born in difficult times, uh, just after the, the financial crisis. And as difficult times happen again, and we get those ebbs and flows, it's pretty robust because on the, on the demands, although the demand slide might, might, might not be growing as quick, you've got the supply side to make up for that, you know, and opening up with more inventory. Well, and, and I just think of my own experiences using it. I'll obviously go on if I go on a holiday vacation, traditional vacation, a few a few times a year or once a year. I'll search for Airbnb. I might use Airbnb, but it's those when I then want to try something different domestically, or like you said, you know, that's when I would typically Airbnb comes into its own because the inventory is not there. Unless I want to choose a budget hotel or something in a in a, in a town in England. So it's it's almost like Airbnb doesn't have to be that differentiated in the traditional resorts. Yeah, that's right. I think it's selection, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with having the same selection in some areas on the marketplace, in my opinion, right? I mean, that's okay. Could they lose it though? Like, could, could, if you're a professional, like, could VRBO come in and be like, "Look, I just want all of the best professional inventory. I'm going to discount my rate and give all and take off all of the good villas in Greece from Airbnb." That could be quite a big problem. I think there's a lot of niche players who have got. Unique inventory in a couple of places in Europe. Yeah, there are those layers, right? But, um, you know, there's always going to be bespoke, very different types of inventory that maybe, you know, people specialize in. But then those companies have all got the marketing costs, right? As well. So I think what Airbnb done a good job is, uh, building a brand that people go to directly a lot of the time. And so they're not having to spend the same amount of money as they could just cut their costs then, right? If they, <laughs> If they yeah, really had I mean, to, not, 
again, the mentality of the company has always been around trying to build experiences, right? Experiences with a small e, right? Just making people want to come back naturally, uh, seeing value for it versus, oh, how can we, you know, up the fee by X, Y, and Z? Um, it's about longevity. I mean, you know, it's about, you know, in a hundred years, it's, you know, the, the view is always, how can we make this company still be around in a hundred years and relevant for people? We'll have to adapt and change, but. Looking forward for the next 10 years and obviously it's, you know, people are estimating a hundred billion GMV in five years. I mean, what are the potential limitations for growth in your eyes for this company beyond that amount, for example? Well, there's a theoretical limitation in terms of the population and the number of days per year and all that and the number of homes there are in the world, right? There is a theoretical limitation, but that's, you know, there are less than probably 1% of that, right? So there's a lot of uh, potential uh, upside from there. I think in 10 years is a long time. The company is only, I guess, what, 14 years old. I think there's opportunities to go horizontally, looking at, you know, things to do, which is experiences which have started, uh, it, somewhat interrupted by COVID and the whole travel industry and then hopefully rekindling in those areas. The transportation side is really interesting. Just taking that share of wallet that people spend on that trip and then looking at where Airbnb can sort of play a part by adding extra value into that would seem an obvious thing. What about the what about the room side of things? If you were if you were running Airbnb, would you be focused on any particular type of inventory? I think where 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 they are actually starting to focus is these longer term stays. I mean, and then, and then there's an interesting area which maybe it's short sighted. Well, I will laugh at my comment now, but in five years time, but there is a hybrid of work home working. Let's assume it stays for a while. You know, the amount of people who are working from home, sitting in their bedroom, getting depressed, if there's an opportunity to give people the chance with these more flexible uh, working, distributed working, a chance to uh, have a, a different type of condition. Maybe there's a crossbreed between somewhere you stay and work. You know, that's an interesting area. Just as offices are changing, maybe homes are changing and being repurposed, uh, hotels are re- changing, repurposed. So the, the, the blurring of lines between living, working, probably offer an opportunity in some form, which is maybe manifesting itself a little bit in these longer term stays. So people are using the platform for that anyway, but what other services would they want the ability to have? What type, like the the typical journey for these longer term stays? So are are they they typically groups, bigger properties, or is it really a mix? A mix. Yeah, for sure it's a mix. So people on business, individuals that are staying in in, in small apartments versus also bigger groups doing a, a week in a... Certainly for people who are able to work from an office, not to be in an office and to be working from somewhere else. I mean, many companies have just permanently decided that they're okay with distributed working and the productivity in some cases has gone up. (laughs) I know not everyone is working as hard, but there's probably some people working too hard because they can't get away from work at home. But if the overall average is, um, is the same, then there's a lot of cost to be reduced out of people's lives and businesses in terms of commuting. And, um, you know, this is a much talked about subject, which I'm not an expert on, but if you just see it all around us, there's got to be an opportunity there for people to tailor services for those types of people. Uh, and that Airbnb is in a prime position to be able to do that. <laughs>